Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today, we're lucky to be joined by Emily Fossey. Emily is a lead genetic counselor for the St. Luke's Health System, which is based in Boise, Idaho, where she specializes in hereditary cancer predisposition and counsels both adults and children. Emily is also a prolific author, having published uh, many articles about the effects of certain types of genetic mutations, as well as some of the current hot topics within medical genetics and genetic counseling. And before we uh, get into any of that, I want to open it up to Emily. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to speak with you. Yeah. So maybe before we dive in, maybe just for people who don't know yet, what exactly is genetic counseling? Yeah. Most people definitely don't know what genetic counseling is, especially patients that I meet with and even people who work in the medical field. So I think there's probably a number of different definitions, but how I usually think about genetic counseling is the process of helping people either through a genetic diagnosis, understanding what it means and adapting to it, or not even a diagnosis, but maybe just a predisposition to a condition through their genetics. And since our genetics affects not just ourselves, but also our families, genetic counseling is really involved in helping not just the patient, but also their family as well. How do you think that this type of profession like came to become more popular? Because I imagine like if we flip back 30 or 40 years ago before, you know, genetics and medicine were really said in the same sentence, there was probably a period of time where maybe people thought that a lot of this would fall under the scope of what an oncologist or a clinician does generally. But I think we have come to find out that that's certainly not the case. I mean, medical curricula and, and many places, and you know more about this than I do, but certainly hasn't caught up to speed with what the bleeding edge of genetics. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about how we've gotten to where we are right now. And as working now as myself in the oncology genetics field, I think that's a space where definitely genetic counselors in the past didn't used to be involved, especially when there were many fewer genes known involved in hereditary cancer. But I think definitely what you mentioned about just lack of genetics education for, unfortunately, a lot of physicians, depending on when they went to school and where they went to school, maybe they just didn't really learn that much about genetics. And our genetic testing capabilities are changing so quickly that it is literally a full-time job just to keep up with the changes in the genetic testing space. So it's almost too much to ask, I think, for one person who has all of these other responsibilities in medicine to also be up to date with every single change that's happening in the genetics field. So I think genetic counselors have kind of really 
strategically been able to insert themselves in places where they can be helpful. And oncology is definitely a main area, but also many other areas of medicine too. Yeah, I mean, I think that people who are, you know, regular readers of, of our research, what you said will resonate with them in terms of the, you know, the, the speed at which genetic testing has proliferated, gotten more complex. Maybe this is a, a longer question that we can return to over the course of the episode, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear about your perspectives on, you know, hey, the, the technology adoption is not slowing down. If anything, it's continuing to, to accelerate and move into new areas. So if I take a step back, I could imagine that the scope and the importance of what you do and what genetic counselors do is only going to increase, you know, maybe not even linearly, maybe exponentially over the course of the next decade or so. I agree. I think that there's so many areas where genetic counselors can have a role that they haven't even gotten into yet. So different types of testing, it doesn't necessarily have to be what we would typically think of as even genetic testing. And even just thinking about getting ready for this podcast, I have been thinking about so many areas where genetic counselors skills can actually transfer over into other areas. So I totally agree with you. I think there's a lot to think about going forward and how genetic counselors can continue to expand where they're involved in genetic medicine. So how did you initially get involved with genetic counseling? I know before you were at St. Luke's, you correct me if I'm wrong, did a little bit of work too on the, in the private sector doing genetic counseling. And so maybe before contrasting how it's different, I would love to know actually what it's like to do private sector versus a health system. But more generally, like, is this something that you had your eye on back in college or maybe even b- before then? Like, was the career path even really open to you back then? Or, or did you have to kind of do it yourself? Yeah, definitely access to genetic counselors and awareness, even though we're still not maybe where we would like to be, it's definitely improved over time. So it's been about 10 years since I graduated from college and I had my biology degree. And actually, I didn't even know about genetic counseling until after I graduated. And I was sitting there at my computer trying to figure out what my next steps were going to be. And I sat there and I googled what can you do with a biology degree because I felt pretty lost. (laughs) I felt like I could either go get my PhD or go to medical school, but I didn't really want to do either of those things. And so uh, one of the things that came up on my Google search was genetic counseling. So that's how I found out about it. Had no idea what it was through college. And as I kind of started reading about it, I thought, oh, this is actually a really interesting opportunity to be able to work not just insulated in a lab, but work with people in the public, work with patients, really have a direct impact on people's lives. And it was only a two-year master's program, which was really intriguing to me. So I wouldn't have to go back to school for a really long time. So that's how I originally got involved in genetic counseling. And like I said before, the field just continues to change. So a lot of people who were genetic counselors before my time say that what it was when they were working is unrecognizable as to what genetic counselors do today. And I'm sure that'll be the case in another 20 or 30 years. For instance, in the oncology setting, before I became a genetic counselor, there really were just like the BRCA genes were the main ones that we knew of, and maybe some other really, really rare genetic cancer predisposition syndromes. So Just the amount of relevance, I think, and the number of genes that we know about involved in cancer predisposition 
has increased almost exponentially, it seems like, over time. Yeah, maybe before we, we get too far away from it. So you're saying that you spent a couple of years doing a dedicated program for preparing you for a career in genetic counseling. Was that something that kind of led you to go to the school that you did? Like, was it a common thing to have like a dedicated program like that at the master's level? Or was that still kind of new at the time? So to become a certified genetic counselor, you have to have that two-year master's degree, typically either in genetic counseling or genetics. And I believe at the time, about 10 years ago, there were, were maybe 30 programs in the United States, typically around big academic medical centers. Now, I think there's definitely more than that. It's gotten, unfortunately, even more competitive now to get in just because there are so few spots open in these programs. They're relatively small. My program had, I think, 12 students, which was on the larger side. There's some that only have about four. Yeah. <laughs> so some of these genetic counseling classes, it could be literally like three other people with you in that class. So they're definitely not high volume programs for the most part. And so that's kind of been a limiting factor in expanding our genetic counselor workforce. But yeah, it was kind of just a matter of finding a program that you felt comfortable in and applying to various ones across the country. Yeah. And, you know, I can imagine, I mean, to some extent, I can sympathize coming from like, if I flip back to, you know, finishing school up and it's like, well, you can pursue something in academia, you can kind of move further along down that direction. And what I've kind of found is like an interesting sort of meta skill that I, I imagine you really have to hone as a genetic counselor is being able to kind of dial up and down the rigor of what you take from academia and, and be able to kind of target that towards whomever is most in need, depending on a lot of things, right? Their education level, what exactly they're affected by, their families. So I know this is asking a, a lot given, you know, the, the, the amount of time that you've really practiced this, but compared to when you set first set foot into this career path, what you thought you knew about the interpersonal side of the business, like how is it different or similar to what you expected back then? Yeah, if I'm understanding your question correct, or I guess just how I'm interpreting it is in genetic counseling school, that's a really common thing that you'll learn is like how to tailor the information that you're giving to a specific person based on what they need to know at that time in that situation. And I think as students, at least for myself, there's kind of this desire to make sure that the patient knows everything about genetics. Like you just want to give them all the background. You want to tell them like what a gene is, what a chromosome is, like where the gene is on the chromosome and things that like don't necessarily matter. The more you practice, the more you realize, okay, this person doesn't necessarily need to have all of this background on genetics, like what are the most important things that they really need to understand? And how can I make sure that everything that I'm sharing with them is making sense and giving them information that they actually need to either make a decision about genetic testing or make a decision about what to do based on their genetic results. So I think the more practice that somebody becomes as a genetic counselor, they just get better and better at knowing kind of intuitively how to work with different people and families and all of those different skills and techniques that you definitely learn in genetic counseling school. But sometimes I think it just, since it is only a two-year program, it takes a lot of practice to really fine tune those skills. Yeah. And physicians, correct me if I'm wrong, sometimes they're like that too, right? Like I've heard, depending on if you're practicing in 
a comprehensive care center or in a community setting, there's a different level of appetite for some of those like auxiliary bits of information, right? Like if they're doing a targeted panel and they say, I only want to know if one of these three markers is a hit versus this whole corpus of information that you could be getting from a lab. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to think about in the oncology setting. A lot of times I think about how we as genetic counselors discuss like germline genetic testing with patients versus when I talk to patients who have had maybe somatic testing, like comprehensive tumor profiling done. And I'll say, you know, like, what was your understanding of that testing? Or what were you told about that? And sometimes they'll be like, oh, I don't know, like, I didn't really know anything about that. And so (laughs) I think it's kind of just a matter of time, honestly, like, how much time does that physician have to really explain every single thing that's being done for that patient versus as genetic counselors, we're so focused on this one specific thing of genetic testing that we really have the time to answer people's questions and go into detail about what it's doing. And of course, it depends on the patient. Some people have a lot more questions and want a lot more information than others. But I think time, unfortunately, in our medical system is an issue that I think a lot of physicians probably wish they could spend more time with patients on those type of things. It's just unfortunately not feasible. Whereas with genetic counseling, like our appointments with patients are typically like an hour long. So we have a really long time to be able to really get into as much detail as somebody wants. So maybe digging a little bit deeper into oncology, because I know that that's what you're specialized and other genetic counselors, you know, maybe they focus on cardiology or metabolics or some other, you know, sort of area. I'm wondering, what, what do you think is unique about focusing on oncology on cancer? You know, I, I think you mentioned already that, you know, one aspect that is that is um, interesting and probably rewarding about doing genetic counseling is that, you know, there's a preventive aspect where you can, and I'm sure we'll get to the specifics of things like cascade testing, et cetera, but there is a real impact for preventing disease in the family. So, I'll turn it over to you, but I'm just curious to know how how oncology is a little different and and how you've decided to focus on it versus some of the other areas. Yeah. So for my background, before working in oncology genetic counseling, I worked more so in the pediatric or rare disease genetic counseling realm. And in that role, I was more working as a team, like with clinical geneticists and metabolic dietitians and nurses. And really the goal in that setting is to diagnose and treat people with generally pretty rare genetic diseases. And so some of those patients, they will be followed by genetics for their entire life. So you'll have a really, really long-term relationship with those people. Whereas in the oncology setting, usually I'm only meeting with people maybe one or two times. So it's a much shorter term relationship that I'm having with them. It's also usually a much shorter relationship because it there's not that diagnostic odyssey aspect as much as there can be in the rare disease setting, you know, where people are being having like a whole list long of genetic tests, unfortunately, before they get their diagnosis or where it sometimes takes years before somebody gets their diagnosis. In the cancer setting, it's typically much more straightforward. We have a test that is appropriate for that patient. And if it's negative, then usually it's there's nothing else that you would need to do at that time. I definitely think a big difference as well is patient's level of background or understanding. Unfortunately, I think most people are 
familiar with cancer. They've either known somebody who has it in their family or friend group. And I think a lot of people are also aware of genetic testing for cancer, whether it's because they've read a news article about it or heard a famous person who had genetic testing for cancer risk or have a friend or family member who has. So I think people are coming into it a lot of times with some background that in the rare disease setting where it's parents whose child is unexpectedly found to have some rare genetic condition, I think it really catches people off guard and there's just much more of a time or a longer time that it takes to really adapt to that. And then like you mentioned, definitely in the cancer genetics space, we typically have pretty good evidence-based guidelines and prevention ideally. Whereas in the rare disease space, if you're dealing with a condition that's only been diagnosed in two or three other people in the whole world, you're not going to have that level of data there necessarily. So that is something that's really nice about cancer genetic testing is number one, most of the entire goal is to actually try to prevent cancer. And that's what a lot of people really want, especially if they've seen a lot of their family members develop and sometimes die from cancer. And then number two, we actually have data on a lot of these interventions to show that they can reduce the chances of somebody developing cancer or dying from cancer. So I do love that about oncology genetic testing. We definitely have more data with certain genes than with others, but I think that's what makes a lot of people interested in pursuing genetic testing. Yeah. And I, I wanted to circle back on, on a comment you just made about the varying levels of evidence with certain genes. I mean, if we flip back more than a decade ago, I'm sure one of the first times that any gene really came to the front uh, of being somewhat like a household name was BRCA1 and 2, BRCA1 and 2. I mean, I, I know sometimes it's almost like synonymous with genetic testing. Oh, did you get your BRCA test? You know, whatever, which I'm sure is maybe somewhat of a, of a pet peeve now. I get that. But I wanted to ask how much pressure that puts on genetic counselors, especially you mentioned you, you focus on, on these set of genes that are related to conferring a predisposition or a higher risk for cancer. And so I think a trend that we have noticed, and I'm sure is not you know, lost on many people, is that from the lab testing side, the panels, the number of genes, are, it's growing larger. In many cases, I mean, for rare diseases, like you mentioned, it can be exomes or genomes, but even within a couple hundred gene panel, sometimes they're new, sometimes ones get taken off, put back on. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, what is the level of whiplash <laughs> that puts you guys through in terms of trying to stay up with it? Yeah, that is something that we talk about almost every single day among our genetic counselor group is like, you know, what should people be tested for? I'm constantly finding myself going back and forth between like, everybody needs to be tested for everything. And then no, like they only need this small number of genes. So I definitely think that the clinical lab industry in genetics has definitely made a big impact on what genetic testing that genetic counselors offer to patients. There is definitely an aspect of like bigger is better in regard to the number of genes that are on a panel, especially for people who don't have genetics expertise. You don't want to miss something. So if you don't really know what you're looking for, well, might as well just test more genes. If it's NGS, same technology, not really changing anything with the cost, like what do you have to lose? But I think as genetic counselors, we tend to be we try to be very selective and we try to be very aware and kind of thoughtful about what we're testing for a patient because 
we know that you can get incidental results. We know that you can get results that can cause a lot of anxiety or results that require further follow-up but aren't really going to help the patient. So I think that that is something that maybe hopefully will get better over time as we just get more data. And I definitely think of it from the perspective of like BRCA, even though we've known about BRCA for like 25 or 30 years, we're still defining the tumor spectrum for those two genes. So like there's just a recent paper about, obviously we know they're associated with breast and ovarian cancer, but even for genes that have been studied as long as BRCA, we still don't know the full tumor spectrum associated with them. And so that just gives you an idea of what we know about some of these other genes. And not to say that it's right or wrong to test them, but I think as genetic counselors, if we're talking to a patient about genetic testing, we are really going to make sure that they know the limits of our data and the limits of our knowledge on some of these genes. And the good news that I love about the clinical lab industry and genetics is that Genetic counselors are so intimately involved in the development of these panels and really, again, very thoughtfully thinking about these issues. And so there's a nice relationship there, I think, between us in the clinical setting and then the labs in regard to really thinking through those gene panels and what's going to be best for patients. I love that there's genetic counselors on both sides of it. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I, I think having that feedback loop is really great. I mean, I'd heard anecdotally, and also I, I know that some large labs will hire and actually have on staff counselors as well who can help with that. But to your point, I mean, it's a great perspective, right? Because if, if I think about the conversations or the observations I've had from the lab industry, it's that oftentimes people will increase the number of genes on the panel solely as a marketing tool and kind of, you know, have sharp elbows that way from the lab industry. And, you know, it's a very competitive environment. But, you know, to your point, the consequence of that is there's a real, very real risk of anxiety, especially having to do with incidental findings and sending a physician down a wild goose chase if you find something else. So it's sort of like kind of building a, you know, building the plane while you fly it, because you made the other comment about we may never get to a perfect level of like academic understanding about every single gene on a panel. And certainly if it's a sufficiently large panel, the evidence is going to be, you know, kind of all over the place on the things within it. So it's tricky, but I, I think I see your point. And I'm hopeful that as we kind of continue to expand it, because I think the forces are in motion on making these things larger, is that the, the input from the counseling side hopefully increases or, or stays steady. I maybe wanted to just dig in a little bit more on that topic with testing and, and panels broadening and, and things like that. I mean, you made a distinction earlier about germline mutations, so hereditary mutations versus the ones that are acquired, the ones that are tumor specific, so-called somatic mutations. And another trend that, that's becoming more common is that uh, labs will do uh, you know, paired testing or tumor normal testing, ostensibly giving you information about acquired and hereditary mutations. I know that has implications for you. I know not every lab is doing it yet, but increasingly I think, you know, reimbursement is kind of pushing in that direction. So one, I guess, quick question is just, have you seen that become more commonplace? I mean, I don't even know how many of the patients you're seeing are actively diagnosed versus people who, you know, come from, you know, family history and are getting tested. So long preamble there, apologies, but <laughs> kind of curious about, about how that works for you. 
Yeah. So for myself and at St. Luke's, I would say it's maybe like 50-50 people we're seeing who come in just from the community who have a family history of cancer, but aren't affected themselves. And then obviously at the Cancer Institute, seeing many, many patients who actually have cancer. And I just thinking back again, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, most genetic counselors were probably only seeing patients primarily with like breast cancer, probably a lot of breast cancer, a lot of maybe really young colon cancer or colon polyposis syndromes. But now in my day-to-day, we could see somebody with any type of cancer that you could possibly imagine. It's just expanded so much. And a lot of it is because of the more comprehensive or broad tumor testing that's being done. So I, I know that that's been being done for a while, but it's probably only continuing to expand in regard to the number of patients that are going to be having that type of testing. And I definitely think in the past, a lot of genetic counselors may have said, I don't deal with tumor genetic testing, like that's not my job. I don't you know, have anything to do with that. But now as we've gotten much more data showing that if you find something in the tumor, there are certain gene mutations that you need to work up to see if they're actually germline. And there's certain genetic mutations that if you see it in a tumor, you can basically know that it is going to be germline. It's just a matter of confirming it. So genetic counselors have a huge role there in making sure that if a patient is kind of incidentally found to have a mutation in their tumor that could be germline, that they should be notified of that and that they should potentially have germline testing. In regard to the concept of paired genetic testing or doing the germline and the tumor at the same time, I definitely think that's becoming much more common. We don't typically do that yet for most patients. The only situation where we're typically doing that currently is if somebody's found to have a mismatch repair abnormality in their tumor that could be suspicious for a condition called Lynch syndrome, which can cause hereditary colon and other types of cancer we will do a paired test of the tumor and the germline because that can really help clarify if the mismatch repair abnormality in the tumor is actually related to germline or somatic mutations. But in other settings, I do think that cost is probably a reason why, like for instance, in ovarian cancer, a lot of times we'll want to start with the germline testing because if you find that somebody has like a BRCA mutation in their germline and they have ovarian cancer, you don't necessarily need the somatic data at that particular moment. And it may be more in your interest to wait and do that testing later on when at the time that it's actually needed. And so again, I think like if costs weren't an issue, sure, like do them at the same time, do them multiple times. But just in the aspect of insurance coverage and wanting to limit the cost that patients will have. I think at least for some cancers still, it makes sense to do them separately right now. But I love the idea of paired testing because it simplifies a lot of things and both tests can kind of inform either. So we're not there yet at our institution, but I definitely think things are moving in that direction. Yeah, you know, I think we've seen some commentary the past few months out of, I don't remember which guideline organization it was, but I I think generally speaking, and feel free to disagree, it seems like the evidence for doing germline testing is starting to broaden. I know initially there was a, you know, a final coverage determination by CMS a couple years ago that focused on breast and ovarian, but it had this little tuck in at the end saying, hey, you know, for prostate, for colorectal, 
for some of these others, we're, we're getting stronger evidence that, you know, as many as something like one in six of people are going to have some sort of pathogenic germline alteration, which is, you know, surprising for me because if I flip over and I, I think about conversations I've had with companies that started with somatic, you know, tumor testing, like we, we were talking about, many of the most successful testing franchises are for mutations or alterations that are even rarer, right, in these tumors. Like an example would be like a fusion mutation in non-small cell lung cancers, I think only something like 2% of cases. And this is maybe surprising for some people. And um, some germline mutations you can target, you know, with like a Laparib or some of these other medications that they go out. I mean, I think you mentioned the DNA damage repair pathway. So that's been surprising for me is just, we just don't do the testing. And it seems like, you know, hopefully we'll track in that direction, but to your point, it's an, it's an evolution. Yeah, and what I am constantly fascinated and humbled by is, I think historically in oncology genetics, we've, in germline genetics, we've thought that we can predict who's gonna test positive. And, you know, that's the whole idea of like why we have these guidelines of who should have genetic testing is like, these are the people who are more likely to test positive. And it's definitely true to some extent, but after doing this for so long, I think any genetic counselor will say, they are way worse than they would like to be at predicting who's going to test positive for a germline mutation. I mean, at least for myself, I pretty much tell patients now, like I used to try to think like, oh, this family maybe has this gene or something like that. And I'm just so bad at it. <laughs> it's just so difficult. And so I think that's an idea behind, you know, making sure that people are getting wider panels and also making sure that you're not necessarily discriminating between people based on their family history of cancer or what you think their likelihood is to test positive. And whether that's because we don't fully understand, again, the maybe lower penetrance that some of these genes may have. Maybe they, we obviously used to have biased ascertainment bias about how high the cancer risks are for a lot of these genes. Maybe the cancer risks just aren't as high as we thought, but also maybe our guidelines have just been unfortunately limiting who's getting the genetic testing or sometimes we see a situation where maybe there's just a lot of males in a family and not as many females so you just don't see as much breast or ovarian cancer as you typically would in another family so there's so many situations and i think that like you said now that we have less biased data showing that the germline mutation rate is quite high across many different types of cancers and that we're not maybe as good at predicting who's going to test positive as we maybe would like to be just kind of our use for, I think, more widespread testing. So I, I wanted to to get into maybe somewhat of a more contentious issue or, or something that I think is currently like really under, I mean, I know you've written about it. So I wanted to talk about polygenic risk scoring. So for some context, when I started at ARC, I think in, in fall of 2018, polygenic risk scoring was one of the first topics. I don't know how I stumbled upon it, but I was interested in learning more about it. And the thought at the time was that clearly very useful, but there's a lot of obstacles to bringing it all the way into you know mainstream clinical practice. Some having to do with ethical issues, some technical, there's still a lot of science to figure out, which I think is the theme of this conversation. So 
I know you wrote a review about it uh, somewhat recently, which I which I read, and I didn't want to you know recapitulate it. I wanted to flip it over to you, but maybe um, just for the people again who who don't know, maybe just comparing and contrasting what is a, a monogenic mutation. We've already talked about a couple of them on this podcast versus what a polygenic framework is and how it can be relevant to you know one's personal risk of developing different types of cancers. Yeah, so I'll start off by saying that I personally don't think I learned about polygenic risk scores when I was in genetic counseling school. You know, we definitely learned about like GWAS, genome-wide association studies and SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, but I don't recall actually specifically learning about PRS and that was back in like the 2014 or 2015 time frame. I think the first time I remember hearing about PRS is actually when I found this app that I could put in my 23andMe data and get my own coronary artery disease PRS, which was kind of an interesting introduction. I think that was the first time I remember really hearing about it. Now we're to the point where there have been clinical implementations of PRS, definitely in the hereditary cancer space, particularly in regard to breast cancer. And we have had genetic counselors who have had experience explaining PRS to patients. So I think one of the main things that I tend to think of as distinguishing PRS from more like Mendelian type of monogenic genetic testing is that only about 10% of people with cancer are gonna test positive for a Mendelian monogenic high-risk gene mutation but everyone's going to have a PRS for breast cancer. And really how we think about the PRS is just instead of focusing on one particular gene that is associated with a really high risk for breast cancer, it's kind of a mathematical model of looking across all of the genes and coming up with this score based on somebody's genetic factors that may be increasing or decreasing their risk for breast cancer. And so I Personally, I'm very intrigued by PRS because I think it's a great opportunity to catch people who we're missing with our current more kind of high-risk monogenic testing. There's so many people out there who have negative genetic testing for hereditary breast cancer. And as genetic counselors, one of the main things that we really try to make sure people are aware of is that just because you had a negative genetic test doesn't mean you have an average risk for breast cancer. There are so many other genes that we're just not testing and that are involved in different ways in breast cancer risk. And so that's what I really like about PRS is just the ability to capture other people who do have a high genetic risk potentially for breast cancer, for instance, or maybe people who actually have a low genetic risk. I think the idea of maybe there's people who don't actually need the same cancer screening that they're being recommended to have. Obviously, that's a very controversial idea and needs more data. But I think one of the things that people have been kind of skeptical of PRS in the implementation has been their performance across people of different ancestries. I think that's been a big thing that I've seen. And we saw in that study, looking at genetic counselors' opinions and use of PRS in the clinical setting. I also think as genetic counselors, we're very aware that people in general, Americans in general, are not appropriately educated on topics like risk, 
statistics, mathematics, things that really, really factor in strongly to the concept of something like a PRS. And so I think there's a need to really make sure that before something like this is implemented, that there's going to be the appropriate education, because the worst thing would be for these PRS to be misinterpreted by patients. And, and unfortunately, that's just a reality of, of our society is that most people just don't have even the background, I think, to really even be able to understand fully what a PRS is. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and to your point, I've heard the same criticism. Like if, if we think about one of the benefits with monogenic or, or single, you know, mutation contributions, we almost have like a functional understanding of how the mutation, you know, breaks the RNA, breaks the protein, breaks the pathway, how that like, and not, not in all cases, but with, I think the issue with, you mentioned genome-wide association studies, which are kind of like the foundation through which you can build a PRS algorithm it's statistical correlation. So is going to be prone to if there's any bias in the training set. And I don't know if the number is still accurate, but I think that for, you know, many of the largest genome wide association studies, they were carried out amongst people with, you know, Northern Caucasian ancestry. And so I mean, I'd like to your point, there may be a fall off in, in predictive accuracy as you move away from that ancestral group. So yeah, I think I, I totally uh, can empathize with the reason why that would, you know, kind of cause some variability and how you know aggressive or excited about the technology people are but it's it's interesting and you mentioned screening right like this is actually the the biggest group of people that i have conversations with about prs is folks who are thinking about how to personalize and also improve the cost utility of cancer screening right because because you know historically we've used these really crude metrics like age or smoking status or things like that to like sort people into groups to like focus screening. I like to think of that as like a, you know, it's more like a surface map and your genetics are like a whole axis of risk that we're just missing for the most part. And and I think, you know, maybe the last thing I'll say on it is just like you said, like the cool thing about PRS is like everyone has one, you know, you're, you're, you're placed along a dis- risk distribution. And, and so everyone's going to be somewhere along that line versus you just positive or negative, like for, for a, you know, a panel, let's say. Tell me if you if you disagree with this, but maybe more disease specific releases first around, you know, if we have a disease area where we do have like sufficient data sets from different ancestral groups. Like I, I've sort of seen inklings of companies trying to almost re-commercialize them. I know there's been some that have been put on market, taken off and then put back on. And I think this year Invitae and some others are, are going to be launching them again, although there's still, you know, some question marks in the air around that. So given everything that you know right now, if you were in the position of like, um, you know, being able to craft how these things come back out and how they're, um, you know, marketed or how they're advertised to consumers, like how do you, what do you think best practice is uh, today? Yeah, well, I guess a very broad answer to that would be that I think that genetic counselors need to be involved in that. That's not very specific, but I think that that's ultimately going to result in I think more appropriate clinical implementation is having genetic counselors involved. You know, currently we don't have any consensus guidelines, at least that I'm aware of in the hereditary cancer space, discussing that PRS should be used. So I think that's just a huge barrier, I think, for a lot of genetic counselors 
in that study that we did, a lot of genetic counselors were very hesitant to start ordering a genetic test that didn't have enough data around it to have those consensus guidelines. But I definitely think there are some areas where PRS would be more appropriate initially to roll out. For example, like if it's in the decision-making process of cancer screening, it's a little bit lower stakes than like a surgery or, you know, deciding to have a child based on a PRS. I think screening, like you mentioned, there's so many other crude measures that we use to try to determine people's risk. And so maybe we just need to start thinking about PRS a little bit differently. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be perfect. It's an estimate. It's a tool to be used just like anything else. And maybe starting off with their use in a little bit lower stakes areas might be more appropriate. But the key is making, how do we make sure that that's clear to patients and people who are going to be seeing these, these scores? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, look, I'm preaching to the choir in terms of needing to involve genetic counselors with these sorts of things. I mean, again, that's been the theme. It's like, even even physicians, you know, may not be experienced, or don't have the education or the, or the time really actually is the main, another main point which is, I wanted to ask about that because you mentioned some of your programs uh, for genetic counseling. It was almost like there, there was a little bit more demand than supply. Sounds like very competitive, kind of smaller uh, programs. And I think something that has been a concern for the lab industry is actually that labor market, is how many genetic counselors are we able to produce every year who are trained and, and knowledgeable on these issues? And to what extent can we buttress against that potential labor shortage with technology while also not wanting to rip the human element out of the most human experience you can have. So I wonder how those things are going to balance themselves with time. I mean, do you have any opinions on, you know, how um, the field is growing or, or not growing ways to supercharge it? And then maybe after that, we'll flip over to talking about how technology can be used to kind of optimize your time as you practice. Yeah, so I definitely think there's been some debate in the past over the issue of like, do we need more genetic counselors or do we really just need to better use the genetic counselors that we currently have? And I think probably both are true, but you know, you you would not believe some of the things that genetic counselors spend their time doing, things that could be done by somebody with much less training, somebody with much less expertise, whether it's like faxing records or entering a patient's order into a lab portal. I mean, things that it just kills you to see a genetic counselor being used in those ways. So I think there's so much room for improving the amount of work that the genetic counselors that we currently have are able to do and really allowing genetic counselors to work at the top of their scope. And we may talk more about this later, but if CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, does recognize genetic counselors as healthcare providers, I think that would be a game changer in really being able to make sure that we have genetic counselors where we need them most and that we're using their skills to the best that they can possibly be used, because I just don't think that that's the case right now in the current system that we have. So what would what would that change if, if that were to take place? And I mean, I, I know that there is ongoing discussions about, you know, what 
should be within the scope of, of a genetic counselor. But if, if that were to, if that recognition were to happen, how would that immediately change uh, your day to day? My hope is that if that were to happen, it would allow for maybe healthcare systems to potentially hire more genetic counselors, maybe allow for them to justify having more genetic counselors, maybe allow them to justify having more support for their genetic counselors. Because right now, because of that lack of recognition as healthcare providers, it really limits the amount that genetic counselors are able to be reimbursed for their services. And so there's a lot of health systems out there that maybe just financially can't justify having a genetic counselor, but could really use one. I don't necessarily know if that's the case, but that would be my hope is that maybe that could help that process along. Is there anything that clinical labs can do by way of, you know, improving clinical decision support, trying to automate things like pedigree collection or returning of results? I mean, I understand, you know, another part of this too is, is, there's probably, and again, like this is your expertise, so tell me if this is wrong, but there's probably a spectrum of cases where, you know, frankly, like there, there might be easier ones that don't need much follow-up or a lot of digging versus ones that are like really, you know, once in a career type examples. Is there anything that the, the lab side can do that would kind of be able to help you <laughs> optimize your time so you're not filling out rec forms? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big advocate of anything that can help genetic counselors you, you may or may not have heard of there's a newer role that has been created called a genetic counselor assistant or a gca and typically it's a role that will be filled by people who are interested in becoming genetic counselors and trying to get some experience so we already have our kind of human gcas but any type of like a non-human or a digital tool that can help augment genetic counselors skills i am extremely open to that. <laughs> we need that. Um, that's the only way that we're going to be able to scale to the extent that we need to for genetic medicine to really get to the point where I think it should be in our healthcare system. Speaking of having genetic testing and counseling show up more widely in the healthcare system, I think the past I'd say 18 months to two years has been really interesting for us to watch the adoption of things like virtual medicine and how that is you know, breaking down historical barriers to, to access. Of course, there are still issues, but I'm wondering if, like I'll give it a specific example, the, the digitization of primary care. I mean, there is such an inflow of capital and attention and resource going to you know, improving people's access to having a primary care physician. I, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but I think it's something like a minority of adults in the U.S. have a PCP that they go to on a regular basis. And I'm just sort of wondering, you know, maybe specifically within the context of primary care, but then we can broaden it out. Like, how do you see genetics kind of moving in and, and cozying up to those different types of like more natural touch points, I guess, that are more familiar with, with, to people? Yeah, so definitely for us here, most of our referrals that we receive for patients from the community who have a family history of cancer are coming from their primary care provider. And if if you have a genetic counseling group who can't accept self-referrals, people basically have to have a primary care provider in order to even be able to get a genetics evaluation. But ideally, we could simplify the process even more. I think that in order for genetic medicine to really have a chance in 
our healthcare system, it's going to have to become more integrated into the primary care setting. And exactly how that happens remains to be seen. But I think as a genetic counselor myself, and probably other genetic counselors out there are more than ready for genetic medicine to be a part of primary care, because that's really the only way that we'll be able to get the amount of people who need genetics what they need. I think that we just need to make sure that we don't lose some of the nuance that goes along with genetic testing. You know, if somebody's found to have a mutation that increases their risk for cancer, it may also affect their carrier status for having a child with a more severe condition or a more severe cancer risk. It could affect their family members. So there's so much that needs to be followed up on, even just with a straightforward genetic result. I don't know if we yet have the infrastructure for that type of a thing. You know, primary care physicians, I think there's been concern just that they already have so much on their plate. They they don't really yeah. have the time to add something like this. But I love the idea of genetic counselors being involved more so in a primary care setting and some of those kind of automation or digital tools that you had mentioned before will probably play a huge role in this as well. Yeah, you know, I can't imagine like a steady state, call it 20, 25 years from now, where genetics is not seamlessly integrated with primary care, whether it's brick and mortar or I guess they're calling it click and mortar now. I think about a lot of those questions in terms of how to get it there. And and to your point, like time is a recurring theme. I mean, even within uh, something a lot more immediate, like colorectal cancer screening, we can look at those trends throughout COVID and see like even the few minutes of conversation it takes to, to have that discussion with someone who's missed a screening is like sometimes too high of a barrier for, for that call point because it's such a quick, quick visit. And the other things that I, I, I hear pushback on, of course, everything you said in terms of clinical decision support, the, the underlying infrastructure that makes sure that we don't lose, like you said, the nuance, even if you mass produce something, because it's still really, really important, is the way that the healthcare system is built up does not really behoove labs that that are you know really going for preventive care because it's just not really how we were ever set up right billing and coding for acute issues and not so much for preventive so I, I hear from a lot of pcps actually who don't have as much expertise in genetics as you do they'll come back and say i'm concerned about cost i'm concerned about you know we've talked about incidental findings and and having to you know have that kind of muck up their their workflows so I don't know exactly. I mean, I'm just sort of like thinking about it out loud. But yeah, I I wonder how some of those issues are going to get ironed out as well. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's it's not going to be necessarily easy, but it really is something that has to happen because the reality is that there are people out there living right now who are going to die from preventable cancers if they would have known their genetics. And so that's just so unacceptable. And so anything that we can do to make sure that people are getting the genetic testing that they need. I mean, another issue that we haven't really talked about, but we sometimes see patients who had genetic testing like 10 years ago, and they didn't realize that they needed to have it again. And in the meantime, they're diagnosed with a cancer that would have been preventable if they would have known their genetics. So it's just really heartbreaking when you think about where we are right now and where we need to get to. So I really only see the way forward is to get genetics more 
in the primary care setting. And it can't just be referring people to a genetic counselor because I don't think that that is going to work in the terms of the scale that would be needed. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll be able to revisit this hopefully sooner rather than later, but you know, we've seen a lot of movement, I think both from the side of the digital health companies that are increasingly participating in like value-based programs are working with ACOs and they understand like the cost benefit of really pushing for low cost preventive medicine. And so they're working from their side and the genetic testing providers are always looking for more market access channels. So I'm, hoping you know one day they'll meet in the middle but we'll we'll leave it on the back burner for now maybe just the last few minutes i'm i'm curious to learn about anything that i mean i i know again like you you've written papers and you're probably in between um you know doing the day job probably actively reading or learning more about the field so i'm interested if there's i'm interested to know if there's anything in the last i don't know couple months that you've read that you, you think is exciting or, or different or uh maybe just something that you're you're reading about I know for us, one of the things that we're really like just having a bunch of internal debates on is something we, we mentioned but didn't dive deeply into, which is just there is so much, re- again, resource capital and attention being put towards liquid biopsy-based cancer screening, whether it's for single cancers, multi-cancer, pan-cancer, whatever you want to call it. And they're all struggling with this issue that we've outlined, which is that the you know, the effects of things like over-treatment, over-diagnosis, some of these, you know, these issues that can really come about from screening programs, a lot of them are mitigated if you can properly, you know, risk stratify a population and seek to enroll people that are going to be more likely to be sick. That almost universally improves the, the health economics for these things. And so the question is just at the front of that call it a diagnostic funnel if you want, but like at the beginning of that process, how can you make it more efficient and make sure people are not getting invasive, you know, surgeries or biopsies or things like that. But at the same time, like you mentioned this huge problem with the fact that we've got, you know, tens of thousands to hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people that may get, you know, eventually get diagnosed with something that was preventable. So that that's our current house debate, but Yeah, that actually kind of something similar came to mind right as you started talking, which is the idea of cancer screening. And I love the idea of genetic counselors being involved in some of these kind of liquid biopsy-based cancer screenings. I think that's a perfect role for genetic counselors because they understand screening so well. They understand risk. They understand uncertainty. They understand the need for follow-up. And I think for some of our mutation positive patients who, like you said, we already know they're starting with a really high risk for certain types of cancer. I love the idea of having tools for them that can hopefully help for some of these types of cancer that we currently don't have that great of screening for, or if we have screening, it's really invasive. So yeah, that is something that is extremely exciting and I can't wait to see where that goes. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll we'll bump into each other on Twitter talking about it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I just wanted to you know take a a second to to thank you for you know speaking with us for for an hour. This was super fun, and uh, hopefully we we can do it again. I mean, the, like you said, the it's like uh, the, every six months, it's like we could do a whole new set of topics. So that that's always a a good problem to have. Yeah, I agree. There's so much that's changing that it's worth revisiting. And thank you so much. It was really nice speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Emily. 
Ark believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that Ark believes to be reliable. However, Ark does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from Ark. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.